Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and I am joined as always by Simon Elliott, Head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. We're going to kick off as normal with a quick review of what's happened in the markets, but I should emphasize that for logistical reasons, I suppose I could describe them as, uh, we are recording this on Thursday lunchtime. So Simon, let's kick off with where we are in the markets so far this week, and uh, before we go on to talk about other things. Sure. Well, it's probably fair to say it's been a bit of a tricky week, or certainly the first three days or so has been a tricky week for the investment companies sector. So the FTSE All Share Closed End Investments Index was down 0.9% the first three days of the week. And that represented an underperformance of the the FTSE All Share. That was probably down about 0.4%. But even as we speak, the markets are are having a little bit of a rally. So who knows where they will end up. But certainly difficult the first three days. And actually, we saw the sector average discount widen out a little bit. So probably started the week on about 2.6%. And it was nearer to 3%, certainly at the time of speaking. But as always, there continues to be a huge amount of focus on the Federal Reserve plans for tapering uh, stimulus. Obviously, a lot of attention spent on inflation, this big discussion whether higher commodity prices and energy prices and indeed labour shortages is going to result in uh, some kind of ingrained inflation as opposed to transitory inflation. But also the market is certainly keeping more than one eye on what's going on in China. So I think as we've talked about in weeks gone by, um, the regulation of tech companies there has certainly been a talking point, and particularly those companies involved with video games. But actually, uh, this week, again, a lot of talk about uh, the fortunes of a company called Evergrande Group and the debt crisis and the implications that it has for the property market in China. So that is certainly one of the market's preoccupations at the moment. Well, while we're on that, before we go on and talk about the results and so on, what's been happening to the uh, the share prices of the Chinese equity investment trust? There are three big ones out there. How have they performed since this whole issue of Chinese uh, states getting involved in closing down some sectors totally and uh, affecting some others as well? Yeah, no, it's a really good question. So it probably won't surprise you to learn that there has been a derating. So when we were talking about these kind of China plays, and there are three investment trust companies focused on China, there's a Bailey Gifford fund, a Fidelity fund, and JP Morgan have also got a fund. Uh, And at one stage earlier this year, they were all trading on premiums. In the case of the Bailey Gifford fund, quite a significant premium, uh, but there has been a marked derating. So just to put some numbers around that, over the last three months, the JP Morgan fund is down 22% in share price terms, Bailey Gifford fund down about 21%, and Fidelity China down about 19%. Now, that's uh, a fall far greater than the NAV decline in that same period. So again, Fidelity China down 16% in NAV terms, uh, and the JP Morgan and Bailey Gifford funds down about 12 or 13%. So those premium ratings have now gone to discounts. The Bailey Gifford fund on a 5% discount, that touched a premium of 34% at one stage earlier this year. And I think we, we definitely talked about it at the time. And Fidelity and JP Morgan on a around about 7% discounts. So yes, quite a significant derating. Presumably, you've got a, quite a few calls about this from uh, your institutional clients. What are they thinking about this? Obviously, the share price has reacted, suggesting that uh, investors are concerned about that. But uh, what have you been saying to them about uh, the prospects from here? It's it's a really good question. I mean, uh, I think obviously people are taking different points of view in terms of the outlook for Chinese equities. I think there's a camp uh, that feels that the sell-off has been overdone, that the long-term prospects are still very, very strong. And equally, there are those people who are incredibly nervous about what this might all mean. I mean, certainly the pace of regulation has picked up clearly in China this year, and that's obviously been the the major catalyst for the D rating. And uh, we had an interesting catch up with Spencer Adair, who's the new manager of Monk's Investment Trust, took over from Charles Plowden at the end of April this year. And he was asked this question, where was he in terms of uh, Chinese equities? And I think to paraphrase his comments, I mean, basically, he's not panicking, but at the same time, they're taking a very careful look at what this means. Um, I think they still see uh, you know, significant opportunity in the Chinese market, but you have to work through these regulations. And in fact, later on in this podcast, we're going to come on and talk about Schroeder Asia Total Return and their recent results. And there was a lot of commentary in those results 
about Chinese regulation and the kind of the future for Chinese equities. So it's not an easy question to answer, but certainly the wiser members of the investment community seem to be reflecting on it very carefully. Yes, and I think the implication there, as you said, uh, you mentioned monks, obviously, but the implications of if, if there is a serious problem with uh, uh, investing in Chinese equities, it won't just stop at the trust that specialise in Chinese equities because China is becoming a very important part of the not just the Asian market, but also the whole emerging markets complex. So there will be uh, knock-on effects for any investment trust operating in that area. I mean, that's that's right, is it not? Absolutely right. Yeah, I mean, it's... <sighs> You can't ignore China, to be perfectly honest. I mean, it's a significant weighting of the Asian benchmarks between about 30 and 40%, depending on exactly which benchmark they use, and a growing element of global indices as well. In addition to which, even those investment trust vehicles that don't directly invest in China will invariably have companies that are exposed to China in terms of their day-to-day operations. So you can't really take the ostrich approach with this one. Indeed, you can't. So that's something certainly to consider. As you say, this could be one of those moments when uh, the sell-off has been overdone. And uh, over time, this would be a good opportunity to buy back into those trusts if you actually like them as vehicles. But equally, it does have some worrying longer-term implications if this is the start of a, a trend of greater state intervention in the markets in China. And we may be talking another time about uh, what, what might be motivating that on the Chinese authorities' part. So let's kick off with some corporate news. There's a bit of uh, housekeeping affecting Baker Steel Resources Trust. BSRT is the ticker. What's been going on there? Yeah, a little bit of an unusual announcement this one. So basically, earlier this week, Baker Steel Resources Trust came out, and in fact, it was the day before their AGM was scheduled, came out and said they were uh, minded to postpone that AGM. And basically, what had happened a major proxy voting agency, and we'll come on and talk about exactly what that means in a minute, misinterpreted the board's recommendation in respect of a triennial discontinuation resolution, with the result that votes were cast erroneously in favour of discontinuation. Basically, uh, the shareholders or the majority of shareholders were contacted and, and confirmed they didn't wish for the investment company to be discontinued and that their votes had been incorrectly voted. So basically, the directors exercised their authority to postpone that AGM. So it will be uh, rearranged clearly and uh, shareholders given the chance to vote again. But yeah, quite an unusual situation. One can only imagine the panic amongst the members of that board and their advisors 24, 48 hours ahead of that AGM when they tallied up the votes that had been cast and realised that they were on the verge of the company being forced to wound up. But I think it does emphasise the increasing reliance on these proxy voting agencies. And these are third-party agencies that become very prevalent as more and more people have put a greater emphasis on governance. We talk a lot about ESG and G certainly is a very important bit of that. Uh, And effectively, they're looking to take a uniform approach to uh, not just investment companies, but all uh, manner of companies. So looking at the tenure of directors, looking at remuneration, looking at strategy. And in this case, they clearly got it wrong and told shareholders to tick the wrong box. Yes, that must have been very embarrassing for them and presumably won't be good for their business in the future. We won't um, embarrass them by naming them, but I'm sure we anybody who's uh, interested in these things can look up and find out who they are. Well, at least the board was sufficiently alert to spot this, or their advisors at least, and at least that uh, should be resolved satisfactorily. But it's an interesting, interesting uh, slip-up, as you say, and uh, Perhaps not a good advertisement for that particular firm. So let's move on. We have to mention something that came up in the newspaper. Not an announcement so much as a media article, which has caused quite a significant market reaction. And I think we need to talk about that. And this is an article which mentions Civitas Social Housing, ticker CSH. Civitas Social Housing, as uh, listeners will know, is one of a number of investment trusts that uh, is in the residential and social housing sectors of the investment trust sector. And this article in the Sunday Times last Sunday, under the heading, The Social Housing City Slickers Making Millions, I think that's an attention-grabbing headline, obviously. And what they did, they quoted, uh, well, a number of issues around Civitas Social Housing which we might just go through, Simon, and explain what the issues were before we actually discuss whether or not uh, it's significant or justified. Uh, But the key point here is that the share price of Civitas Social Housing uh, has fallen and has been falling for a while now. 
And this article mentions the fact that there is a short seller, in other words, a fund management group that is uh, selling the shares short, in other words, betting that the share price will fall. And indeed, it has done. So can you fill us in with some of the background about what the issues here are before we talk about whether it's actually going to have a lasting impact on the share price of this and similar investment trusts? Sure. So I think there were kind of three broad issues brought up in the Sunday Times piece. I think one was probably as that headline alludes to. There was a general question of the morality, I think it's fair to say, of private capital benefiting from investment into social housing, which is an issue probably beyond my pay grade. People can take their own view on that. More specifically, the article highlighted what the regulator for social housing had been saying in terms of the non-compliance of a number of housing associations, one of which is an outfit called Auckland. And they represent, I think my recollection, about 16% of Civitas Social Housing's rent roll. So this wasn't new news. We knew about this at the start of August. And it was actually one of the factors behind the share price of Civitas. I think at that stage, it was about 120p, 121p. And we, we did see a sell-off in August, largely on the back of this development. But then the final thing is, again, as you just mentioned, it was this report from a, a short seller called Shadowfall. And um, I'm not aware of anyone who's actually seen this report, apart from clearly the Sunday Times journalist in question. But they highlighted that Civitas had been, amongst other things, acquiring operating companies in this space and then splitting out the property companies and the operating elements. So the property bit they kept in Civitas social housing, and that's very much what they do. But the operating company bit was kind of stripped out and sold on to a third party in which two of the directors of Civitas, the investment company, had a minority stake. So that was the kind of new news, if you will, element of the article. And you're absolutely right, Jonathan, that it did see um, quite a significant impact on the share price. So just to put some numbers, I mentioned early August, it peaked out at just short of 121p. This week, on an intraday basis, it hit a kind of bottom of about 90p. So it started the week at a lower level. It was probably nearer to about a pound. But since then, we have seen a bit of a recovery. On my screen at the moment, it's about 96.6p. So it has come back some way off that 90p bottom. Yeah, so uh, just to be clear about this, we're talking about two directors of the management company that uh, is appointed by the board of directors of the Civitas Social Housing Investment Trust. And two of those individuals have a 10% stake in this operating company that was split off when they made this acquisition. And the question really is, I think the issue that this raised, or at least that the short seller was trying to raise, was that uh, this transaction should have been disclosed because there is a suggestion that this might have been a related party transaction. But the trust itself and the company, uh, the Civitas, the fund management company, I think have contested that uh, assessment. Perhaps you can explain what they've said about um, why they uh, don't think this transaction should have been disclosed involving the two directors. Yes. I mean, they refute the allegation entirely. So they're saying because they were just minority investor shareholders in the acquiring company, it fell outside the uh, related party rules. That was clear with the UKLA. The board of Civitas Social Housing PLC they cleared it with them. So basically, they cleared their lines. They're quite adamant that it wasn't a related party transaction as per the, the, the strict legal definition. And there's nothing to suggest that that is inaccurate in any way, shape or form. And it's worth adding as well that one of the reasons why they claimed that they hadn't been disclosed, quite apart from it not being a related party transaction, was because they saw this as a competitive advantage in terms of the way they were operating, that the ability to acquire again, in their opinion, high quality properties with an operating element to it, but then be able to swing out the operator. They thought that gave them an advantage in kind of building out their portfolio. So that's their argument. I mean, I dare say there are some shareholders of Civitas Social Housing will hear that and suggest that that's all well and good, but maybe going forward that they could provide greater disclosure around these type of deals. I mean, certainly there are, again, according to the Civitas team, quite a lot of checks and balances around this to ensure that the correct transfer price is met and all the rest of it. But I think disclosure is is so important, particularly with an investment approach where you are offering yourself as doing social good and having a positive social impact. Uh, I think it's very important to put all your cards on the table. Yes, I think that's certainly a good argument. You know, you've had some contact with the company, you've spoken to the company, and uh, 
I've heard from the company's spokesman as well, but they haven't made an announcement of any sort. Uh, they haven't put out a, an RNS, a regulatory news item, refuting this uh, directly. And that is, I, I struck me at least as uh, certainly a, something that could be debated. I mean, you could, two ways of dealing with this when you have this kind of short sellers attack which incidentally, as you say, nobody else has seen this particular research report that the short sellers claim to have put together other than the uh, the Sunday Times journalist who they contacted, presumably, uh, in order to get some publicity for their particular position. So you, the argument is either you kind of just come out straight away and you uh, re- refute it and uh, do so promptly, and then all the shareholders are aware of what's going on, but not to say anything at all. That struck me as a little strange. You know, I'm sure they would have discussed this carefully, particularly if they believe that uh, you know the board obviously has gone through all that they're aware of what's happening, aware of this article, aware of the issue, and uh, they cleared it all in advance, this uh, particular transaction. I guess there is an argument that could be made that they should have perhaps or should still put out some kind of formal statement so that uh, ordinary shareholders are at least aware of the fact that these allegations have been made and they are vigorously contested shall we say, which is certainly what the uh, the company has been doing. Has it had any impact on the share prices of other investment trusts that are in, uh, involved in this particular sector? So if you look at the rating, and it's probably worth noting, actually, certainly the share price of the close of Wednesday, Civitas Social Housing was trading on about an 11% discount to their latest NAV, having been on a premium of about 13% not that many months earlier. It's also just worth knowing when we're looking at the numbers that as a function of the fact that the share price has declined, so too the yield on a historic basis, i.e. looking at what they've paid in the last 12 months in terms of dividends, has risen. So they're yielding 5.8% at the moment. Now, whether that dividend is maintained remains to be seen, but certainly the impression that Civitas are trying to give is that it's very much business as usual, that they've had 100% of their rents met and so on and so forth. But just looking across the peer group, I mean, we have it in this subset called UK Residential. So it's a bit of a a mixed bag. We've got the student property things in there as well. But if you look at something like Home REIT, which is one I think we discussed relatively recently, that's still trading on on a big premium, 13%. We've got triple point social housing. That's on a small discount of about 3% at the moment. That compares to a 1% premium on average over the previous 12 months. And residential secure income probably trade around NAV at the moment. I guess the final issue here, or the final issue here for the moment, Simon, is the question of whether or not Civitas and others in this business have done enough to effectively refute this potential concern, the regulators' concerns about housing associations. So leaving aside this particular issue about disclosure, which is a specific issue, uh, the more important one, I think, for the future of this particular trust and others like it is whether or not the regulators' concerns are a long-term issue that uh, this trust and others have to confront effectively. No, I think that's right. I don't think it's going away. I mean, the regulator is clearly working through the list of housing associations and, and flagging up these issues as and when they arise. You have Civitas on the other side of the fence saying, effectively, that there's nothing to see here. But as and when these things pop up, as we saw in early August, there is a share price reaction to it. So, you know, for an asset class that should be relatively stable, this is probably a hurdle to overcome, particularly if we see these kind of share price moves on the back of this. So I don't think this is going away anytime soon. I think it's one of the fundamental risk that might be overstating it, but it's it's something that investors or potentially investors really have to get comfortable with if they're going to get involved in funds in this sector. Yes, it certainly introduced some volatility in the share price, and that uh, may be at odds with the kind of reasons that most investors decided to invest in this a secure yield with uh, long-term contracts. Okay, let's move on. We've devoted a lot of time to that, but I think it's interesting because it raises issues about boards and about disclosure, and as well as this uh, more fundamental issue about who should actually uh, benefit from the provision of social housing. Let's move on and talk about some fundraising. This goes on. We've talked about a lot in the last few weeks, but there's some news from Digital Nine Infrastructure. DGI9 is the ticker, and I think they're looking to raise some more money. They are indeed. They're looking to raise £200 million of equity at a placing price of 107 spot 5p. That's as part of their placing programme. This will close on the 28th of September, with the new shares set to begin trading on the 1st of October. 
So that placing price represents about a 9% discount or so to the closing price just ahead of the announcement and about a 4% premium to the NAV at the end of June. Unsurprisingly, they have a pipeline of assets all lined up. So I think there's talk of an immediate pipeline of £670 million worth. Uh, that includes £167 million worth of assets under exclusivity or on a non-competitive basis. Uh, and that's all expected to be completed within a few months' time. In addition to that, the managers have identified a 12-month pipeline of about $1.85 billion of operational opportunities. So it would not be a great surprise to see this one coming back for additional capital. But it is quite worthy of note, I think, that this investment company only launched back in March when they raised £300 million through their IPO and then came back again in June and raised an additional £175 million at a pricing price of 105p. So if they are successful this time around, they've certainly raised a lot of capital in a, in a short period of time. Yes, it's pretty impressive if you take their experience and that of Cordian Digital Infrastructure, which is the, the second company which is offering this kind of vehicle. I mean, they've, they've raised, I think, getting on for about a billion pounds in less than six months. I mean, that's pretty good going, isn't it? No, it really is. It really is. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of money that's been raised by infrastructure funds over a number of years now, but for effectively a different type of infrastructure fund to go from zero to, uh, as you rightly point out, about a billion pounds worth of capital from a standing start is quite an achievement. Yeah, so uh, there's obviously a lot of demand for that, or at least people like the story. We'll have to wait and see how they actually perform. But let's move on and talk about the uh, Renewables Infrastructure Group. That's uh, ticker TRIG. They have been out raising money. And how's that one gone? It's gone well. They raised £200 million, and that was via an issue of 161 million new shares at a price of 124p per share, and that including 1.5 million shares issued across primary bid. So basically, the issue was significantly oversubscribed. That resulted in a scaling back exercise, and the new shares began trading on Friday. This represents the first placing for TRIG, as this particular investment company is widely known since March. At that stage, they raised £240 million at a price of 123p. Just to explain a little bit to what tends to happen with the share prices when these issues are going ahead. I mean, when they announce it, they announce the issue price. What we often see is you see the share price sort of coming back closer to that level. What is the mechanism underlying that? And uh, what's the general experience with issues of this kind? Yeah, no, it's a good observation. I mean, effectively, what you find with these kind of placings is that it's at a premium to NEV because that's very important. So there's no dilution in NEV terms to ongoing shareholders, but at a discount to the screen price, the kind of the share price at that point of announcement. But what can also happen, so in the case of, of Trigger, as I mentioned, they raised money at 124p. I've got it all sunny at the close of Wednesday. It, it closed about 127, 128p. And that, that can be quite common as well. So you see a little, little bit of a dip in the share price. But particularly when it's very oversubscribed, it may be the case that people need to top up their allocations or certainly the share price tends to go better thereafter. Yeah, and that's certainly been the case so far with that particular one. And as you mentioned before, Simon, I mean, from what one hears, there's a lot of activity uh, behind the scenes going on with fundraising. And uh, would it be fair to say that as long as the markets hold up, that uh, there's still more to come, do you think? No, I think that's absolutely right. So I think the figures to the end of August, again, slightly off the top of my head, but I think it's something about £8.6 raised across the investment company sector. So we've already exceeded the level that we saw last year. Obviously, it was a slightly unusual year last year. But certainly on the current run rate, you would expect it to be through £10 billion by the end of this year. And if some of those IPOs that we've talked about in weeks gone by come off, then this should be a record year for fundraising across the investment company sector. And within that context, the renewable energy continues to be able to raise money, even though there have been some quite well-flagged issues about where future energy prices are going. And to the extent that uh, this does affect some investment trusts more than others, obviously those with guaranteed income subsidies and so on are, are, are less affected by that. But what's been the trend? You know, obviously the premiums narrowed a little bit, but they've been coming back up again, have they, or not? What's been the general picture across the sector, which is obviously now quite large? That's right. And I mean, essentially, premiums are very common. You can find one or two names on trading on small discounts, but in the main, trading on quite significant premiums. So just to put some numbers around that, if you look at the renewable energy infrastructure subsector, we've got the average premium rating at the moment around about 10%, 10 or 11%. So that's a pretty decent premium. And it certainly gives scope 
for those investment companies within that subsector, for instance, to come back and raise additional capital, should they be in a position to do so? In other words, they have a pipeline of investments ready to go. So we may look out for more in that from that context, from that corner. Let's move on to talk about results now. So we've got Aberdeen Smaller Companies Income Trust. That's a ticker ASCI. We have to um, wait news whether or not they too are going to change their name to this new I'm still struggling for a way to describe it. The new uh, brand name for Aberdeen Standard Life Investments, which is A-B-R-D-N, all lowercase. Uh, anyway, they had some interim results, and I'm sure they had something to say about the name. But uh, the more important thing is, how have they uh, been performing? Yeah, uh, not too bad is the answer to that. So in the six-month period to the end of June, their NAV total return was up 20.1%. That compares to a rise of 17.4% for their benchmark, the NSC X Investment Companies Index. Share price terms, not as good, actually. Share price total return was up 9.4% as the discount widened from 10% to about 18%. But as the name would suggest, this has an income element to it. And the revenue per share figure in that six-month period came in at 4.14p per share. That was up markedly on the the first six months of last year when it came in at 2.03p. Obviously, a very difficult environment last year for dividends. So uh, Aberdeen Smaller Companies Income Trust has declared two interim dividends so far at 2.15p. And that's uh, an increase on the same period last year. But in terms of what's been going on with the portfolio, it's Abby Glennie who's responsible for this one. She works alongside Harry Nimmo at Aberdeen Standard Investments. And so some good commentary around how the portfolio performed. Basically, the first quarter of this year was, was a tricky period as value and more cyclical names did well. The second quarter, they outperformed. But some good commentary around comments about uh, supply chain dislocations, labour shortages and wage inflation. Um, essentially, they remain positive on the outlook, but they are watchful uh, on inflation. What is the yield on that one at the moment? And uh, how does its performance compare with that of Harry Nimmo's uh, Standard Life UK Smaller Companies Trust? I think they've actually slightly outperformed over the last 12 months. Is that is that right? Well, the yield is 2.2% on a historic basis at the moment. So the yield is higher than on the fund that Abby runs with Harry. So Standard Life UK Smaller Companies, that yield is about 1%. But in terms of the performance record over the last year, uh, over the last 12 months, Standard Life UK Smaller Companies is up 42% in NAV total return terms. Aberdeen Smaller Companies income, uh, not much in it actually, up 41%. So they're almost neck and neck over the last 12 months. And in terms of the discounts, though, they're not on the same uh, rating, obviously. No, that's right. So Standard Life UK Smaller Companies are probably trading around about 4 or 5% discount at the moment. Aberdeen Smaller Companies' income are got a, on about an 11% discount at the moment. And it, historically, it has traded on a wider discount. So over the previous 12 months, it's averaged a 14% discount. So it's worth noting it is a smaller vehicle. Its market cap is about $88 million. And that compares with 748, and this is at the close of Wednesday for Standard Life UK smaller companies. And what have they had to say about this uh, name business? Well, the board are considering options for name changes, potentially to align to the Aberdeen Novels brand. But um, one suspects that there, there might be some consultation with shareholders as well. Well, eventually the dust will settle on that particular issue. Uh, and we'll move on to Henderson High Income Trust. HHI is the ticker for this one. They've had interim results for the same period. And uh, how did they do in comparison? That's right. So they generated an NAV total return of 12.3%. Now that compares with 8.4% for their benchmark. So this is a kind of hybrid investment trust. So it has an equities portfolio and also a bond portfolio. So its benchmark is 80% the FTSE all share. And then the 20% is a bond index. So they outperformed. And in share price terms, they did very well, actually. They were up 21.8% as the rating moved from a 6.5% discount to a premium of about 1.4%. So uh, dividends are an important part of the story, and they made it clear that their intention is to maintain the full-year dividend of at least 9.9p, utilising revenue reserves as necessary. But it's managed by a chap called David Smith, and certainly some good commentary around what performed well for him in this period. So very positive performance from some of the financials in the portfolio, in the equities portfolio, such as St. James's Place, Intermediate Capital Group, and NatWest, and also some of the industrial holdings, Johnson Matthey and TI Fluid Systems also did well. They have been reducing their bond portfolio down, actually, so that represented about 11% of net assets at the end of the period. 
So just to compare that with the Aberdeen uh, Income Trust, Smaller Companies Income Trust, just because they happen to be uh, side by side, they, you get a much higher yield on Henderson High Income Trust, but the performance has been not quite as good. Is that right? That's right. So Henderson High Income probably yielding about 5.8% or so at the moment. Uh, and just to put some five-year NAV total return numbers around it, so they're up 30% over a five-year period, whereas Aberdeen Smaller Companies Income is up 97% in NAV total return terms over five years. Okay, so we'll move on and talk about a couple of overseas trusts now, including one you mentioned earlier. But first, let's look at AVI Japan Opportunity Trust, AJOT. They've also had interim results for the six months to the 30th of June. That's right, in which time their NAV total return was up 2.7%. And that compared with a rise of 1.4% uh, for the benchmark. Share price, about the same, actually up about 2.5% as the, the premium just narrowed uh, slightly. But uh, as I think we've talked about before, this one is run by Asset Value Investors. So Joe Baumfreud and Tom Trina, they're very much about improving corporate governance in Japan. And in this period, they submitted shareholder proposals to seven companies, of which four were subsequently withdrawn following, as they put it, shareholder friendly actions. In other words, the companies in question, I think, jumped to a little bit. Clearly, it's been a difficult, or certainly the first half of this year, um, was a more difficult period for Japanese equities. But in the last few months, the numbers have picked up there. Indeed, it has. So they've been working hard and getting, they claim, positive reaction from some of the companies they're seeking to influence. But so far, the results haven't shown up in the performance uh, particularly. How does AJOT compare in terms of its, uh, it hasn't been going that long, obviously, but how does it compare in terms of performance with a more conventional Japanese uh, equity trust, which isn't following this kind of activist agenda? Yeah, no, it's a good question. So on a three-year NAV to return basis, they're up 31%. And if you look at some of the other names in their peer groups, such as Bailey Gifford, Chinippon, that's up 41%, or Atlantis Japan Growth, up 44%. Uh, and there's also a JP Morgan Fund as well, which is up 49% over that three-year period. But each of those three peers, I would suggest, have got much more kind of growth-orientated uh, investment approach. So AVI is doing something quite different with this particular fund. Okay, so now we'll talk about Schroeder Asian Total Return. You mentioned them earlier, ticker ATR. They've had some interim results, uh, and as you say, made some interesting comments on the Chinese situation. Uh, first of all, what were the results like? So for that six-month period to the end of June, they generated an NAV total return of 5.8%. Uh, that represented a small outperformance of their benchmark. That was up 5.7%, the MSCI or Country Asia Pacific X Japan Index. In share price terms, not quite as good, actually. Share price total return up 4.1%, just as the rating just slipped a little. But within the portfolio, technology holdings performed well, um, and that was hardware names in Taiwan. Well, e-commerce names outside of China also did well for the portfolio. Detractors, well, they had a holding in a company called New Oriental Education, which is a Chinese company. Um, Unsurprisingly, that got hit very hard, and they've been selling that down ahead of that uh, regulation development, uh, and also more export-related names as well. This investment trust is kind of noted, it uses capital protection, and during this period, uh, markets rose. So actually, that capital protection detracted to an element, though actually, it's come back into its own since the end of this period. But there was, as you mentioned, this really interesting commentary from Robin Parbrook and King Fu Lee, the two uh, long-standing managers of this one, regarding Chinese regulation and how they see the Chinese market and Chinese tech space at the moment. I think without going to get too bogged down in what they were saying, I think they are clearly relatively cautious on Asian equities in general, but they do give a very good perspective on why the Chinese state wants to uh, assert a greater level of control over its internet sector. Well, I'm sure that would be worth looking at. And these shares, they trade at uh, around par or slight premium, which suggests that their uh, performance record is pretty good. Is that the case? Are they the kind of market leaders in this sector? You're absolutely right. The premium rating is about 2% or so at the moment. That's broadly in line with what we've seen in terms of an average over the previous 12 months. In terms of the performance numbers, well, they have performed well over the long term. They're up 104% over the last five years on an NAV total return basis. They're probably only second to Pacific Horizon, which is a Bailey Gifford fund, and that's generated a return of 249% over that five-year period. 
but it's worth noting that Trader Asia Total Return will take a different approach and it does deploy, as, as I mentioned, um, capital protection as well, just to take some of the volatility out. Okay, so we'll move on. Again, we didn't mention when we mentioned Baker Steel Resources Trust uh, before with a uh, unfortunate mishap with their AGM resolutions, but they also have put out some interim results, uh, again, for the same period, six months to 30th of June, ticker BSRT, as I mentioned before. Never mind the administrative issues. Uh, how has their performance been? Well, it's a relatively quiet period for them, really. The NAV was up about 2.7%. That compares with a rise of 11.4% for the EMIX Global Mining Index. In share price terms, though, a lot stronger, up 27.7%. But in terms of what's going on at the portfolio level, their largest holding, uh, Bilbo's Gold, had reached an outline terms for a partial sale to a gold producer. But so far, they've been unable to reach a final agreement, although the investment team at Baker Steel are confident that this will be reached. Um, that's quite significant. It represents 19% of the NAV. Also, the investment team point out they think there's going to be a pickup in M&A activity, and there are two potential IPO candidates in the portfolio as well. So it might be a case that uh, you see a lot more activity in the second half of the year. But this is a more specialist resources play. 93% of the portfolio is exposed to unquoted at the end of June. Only 6% were in quoted companies. And the long-term performance, I mean, what do you think justifies the... Uh obviously significant change in the rating we must have seen for the share price to do so much better than the NAV over this period. What do you think the reason for that is? I mean, it's worth noting that the share price on this one can be quite volatile, actually. So just over the last 12 months, it's it's been on a premium rating at one stage for about 3%, but it's also been on a discount as wide as 25%. So I've got it currently on a 12% discount. So it can swing around a little bit. And I think that's a reflection of the, of the fact that it's a very high proportion of unquoted the top 10 holdings represent over 90% of, of net assets. So there's quite what we'd call high stock-specific exposure on this one. Indeed. That would be quite impressive compared to some others in terms of the concentration there. Let's talk about Biopharma Credit, BPCR. They've had half-year results also to the same period, 30th of June. Tell us first of all what they do and then uh, tell us how they've uh, been performing. So as the name would suggest, this is quite a specialised play on the biopharmaceutical sector. Basically, it's debt for some leading biotech companies. So again, quite a concentrated portfolio. It's traded very well. In fact, it's issued quite a few shares over previous years. But on this half-year results to the end of June, the NAV was quite quiet, frankly. It went from $1.37 to 99.8 cents. And the share price just moved down slightly as well from 99 0.6 cents to 96.6 cents, so it declined 3 cents. But the important element of this story is the dividends. They paid out dividends of 3.79 cents in the period. That included a small special dividend as well. And they're targeting a total dividend of 7 cents for the full year. But as I mentioned, it's quite a concentrated portfolio. One of the things to always watch with this one is how much cash they're running at any one time. And I think also as well, we talked uh, recently about the proposed move onto the premium segment of the, the main market of the London Stock Exchange as well. Um, and that will be subject to a vote at the general meeting on the 30th of September. Yeah, so the implied yield here is something in the order of 7%, which obviously looks attractive. I mean, there aren't many doing that, but we, we know there have been quite a lot of issues in the uh, debt sectors. Is that uh, exceptional, the 7% potential yield here? It's certainly on the high side. I mean, there's quite a range, to be honest, in the debt sector. And, and some of them, some of the kind of more esoteric offerings or those in a kind of managed wind down, you can often find notionally higher yields. But yeah, I mean, 7%, I'm just trying to put some context around that. If you look at the kind of more mainstream debt, the kind of loans and bonds funds, they're probably averaging about 5%. So Biopharma Credit, although clearly a more specialist offering, is, is certainly on the higher side. I suppose it's worth mentioning also that they're a pretty large business now. They've got a, a significant uh, assets and market cap, but they are quoted and uh, operate in dollars. Is That's right, is it not? That's spot on, yeah. So the market cap in stunning terms is about £970 million. So yes, you're right. It's a substantial company now. Moving on then to Dunedin Enterprise, DNE is the ticker, uh, and they've also had interim results for the six months to the 30th of June. They have indeed, in which time they generated an NAV total return of 20.5%. And it's actually worth noting here that in share price terms, it wasn't as impressive as that. Their share price total return was up 3%. But that NAV reflected a, a realisation that effectively 
happened post the period end, a company called Upol, the valuation or realization value effectively was reflected at the 30th of June, which is why you've got that slight mismatch in NAV and share price terms. In fact, since the period end, the share price is up 21%. The sale of Upol uh, was completed on the 15th of September. There were proceeds of £22 million as a result of that, which is quite a, a large chunk when you think that the net assets of this investment trust came in about £90 million at the end of June. So Dunedin Enterprise is in managed wind-down. So unsurprisingly, the board have said that given that they're now sitting on quite a bit of cash, in fact, I think they estimate about £40 million or so once there's another realisation currently underway, their intention is to hold a tender offer. So the idea being capital will be returned to shareholders. And if they are in managed wind-down, just quickly on the rating, I mean, in a managed wind-down, you'd expect the discount to narrow uh, over time as it approaches the end of its life. But what's been happening with the discount in this particular case? So they're trading on a discount of about 13% or so at this precise moment in time. The share price has gone a little bit better on the back of these results. And again, it's varied quite a bit over the last 12 months. But I think as a general point, it's worth noting that when you have particularly these private equity companies in managed wind-down, what we've seen before is that as realisations are made and capitals return to investors, you can often end up with quite a concentrated portfolio. So, you know, invariably the companies that haven't been able to uh, be sold as yet. So that's something to note. So it's not always the case, as might be true of a uh, investment trust company investing in a kind of publicly listed equities, where invariably you would expect the discount to narrow into NAV as it approached its kind of final uh, wind down. Okay, so uh, we'll talk next about RTW Venture. RTW is a ticker. This is another interesting trust that specialises mainly in uh, biotech and healthcare, and which moved to the main market uh, earlier this year. They've had some half-year results, uh, again, for the same period. That's right, in which time their NAV was down about 3%, but actually the share price was up 9%, and that compares with a rise of 8% for the NASDAQ Biotech Index, and a decline for the Russell 2000 Biotech Index of 5%. So it's been quite a busy time for this investment company. 13 new core portfolio companies have been added, uh, and they estimate that as at the end of June, 65% of the NAV is invested in core portfolio companies, of which they're in various state of, of rolling out new drugs and clinical stage programs. So in the results, the manager noted that capital deployment is ahead of target uh, and the team has continued to deploy capital in what they describe as carefully selective core portfolio companies. Let's move on and talk about third point investors. Well, we've talked about uh, a fair bit before, but uh, let's talk about them again. A TPOU is the ticker. They've had some half-year results to the 30th of June as well. That's right. And their NAV was up 16.5% in that period. That compares with a rise of 15.2% for the S&P 500 index and a rise of 133 for the MSCI World Index. So the point being, they've outperformed the kind of mainstream equity indices. In share price terms, they've done even better, actually up 27.4%. And that's a reflection of the fact that discount narrowed from 19% to about 11.5%, certainly at the end of June. So uh, the results made the point that each asset class in the portfolio has contributed to returns. Um, so a lot of chat about their public equities, what's been going on there with some of their what they call constructivist positions, such as Prudential or Intel, and then some of the venture capital holdings that have become newly publicly listed as well. And so I think a couple of those have come through in terms of SPACs. So a bit of commentary around the results. Obviously, as you mentioned, we've, we've talked about this quite a lot of weeks gone by uh, because of that clash with asset value investors and three other leading shareholders. Yes, they've been uh, agitating for uh, the board to take more steps to uh, reduce the discount, which uh, has indeed come in. So I guess the board could say that uh, they're doing the right things already. And uh, asset value investors could say that even though their uh, various ploys or propositions they've put to the board have not generally been accepted, that they're seeing some results from that. No, I think that's right. And again, just to put some numbers uh, around that. So at the moment, third point investors probably trained on about a 14% discount. That compares with an average of about nearer to 17% over the previous 12 months. Okay, so let's move on and talk about some of the infrastructure trusts which have been reporting, as we mentioned before, these are mostly in the energy sector. And it's been a bit of a period so far this year of kind of mixed fortunes uh, in terms of both discounts and in terms of what's been happening to energy prices and so on, and a lot of fundraising. So the first one we might look at is Foresight Solar Fund, FSFL is the ticker. 
they've also had half your results to the 30th of June. They have in which time their NAV is up 2.3%. So they benefited from the upward revision to power price forecasts uh, in that time and also some new fixed price agreements. So that worked for them well. Uh, in terms of the dividend side of the story, well, there were total dividends of 3.49p and the fund is on track to deliver its 2021 target dividend of 6.98p, which it expects to be at least 1.1 times covered. So the generation from its UK portfolio is about 3.4% above base case, but actually the total portfolio generation is below, about 2% below base case, mainly as a result of its Australian assets. I don't think that's necessarily a reflection of where the sun has been shining over this period. I think it's more to do with operational problems. So this Foresight Solar Fund has been around for quite a few years now. I think it was uh, IPO'd back in 2013. And I mean, the share price is uh, still around a pound, but it has actually delivered significant dividend yield over that time. So what is the level of dividend now? And how does that compare to the peer group? No, you're right. So it is trading around about a pound or so, but the yield on a historic basis is about 7%. And that puts it on the high side, actually, in that uh, renewable energy infrastructure peer group. So the average, I think, as I mentioned earlier, is about 5, 5.1%. So this is one of the higher yielders in the subsector. I expect, though, that the number of shares would have expected to see a little bit of capital gain as well over the same period, but they have delivered a high yield. And uh, there are some issues around solar as the subsidy environment changes. Let's talk about Greencoat Renewables, GRP, which is uh, on a higher rating. They've also had half-year results to the 30th of June. And uh, how have they done? Well, their NAV was up from 101 cents to 101 spot one cents, uh, which seems like a bit of a rounding error, but at least it moved in the right direction. They also paid out dividends of three spot 03 cents. And actually, the gross dividend cover came in at 1.8 times or even 1.4 times after the debt at the special vehicle level is taken into account. So the fund is continuing to target dividend increases within a range of zero to effectively inflation. But there was some commentary around the energy production. That was actually down 11% in the period due to lower wind speeds. And there's been some discussion of that uh, in the media. At the end of June, they were sitting on aggregate debt of about 690 million euros. And that was equivalent to about 48% of gross asset value. Okay, so you, they are they're trading on a big premium. So presumably their yield is uh, somewhat lower than that of uh, Foresight Solar Fund. That's correct, about 5.1% at the moment. So uh, we can move on to talk about VH Global Sustainable Energy Opportunities, GSEO, which is another relative newcomer to the market and to this sector. They've had interim results uh, for the period from IPO, which was back in February, uh, all the way through to the 30th of June. So a pretty short period. <laughs> it is indeed, in which time their NEV... Uh, some a small decline, about 1.3%. Share price total return was actually down only about 0.3%. They haven't actually paid a dividend as yet, but they are targeting initial annualised dividend of, well, the minimum will be a penny for the financial period from the IPO to the end of this year. And thereafter, they're targeting an annualised dividend yield of 5p for the 2022 financial year. But at the end of June, they were 92% or 92% of their IPO proceeds had been invested or committed. Um, and unsurprisingly, they're not actually deploying any leverage at the moment. Okay, so now we can talk about Standard Life Investments Property Income. This is obviously another trust in the commercial property sector. The ticker here is SLI, at least it is for the moment, because this is also another one from the Aberdeen Standard Life Investments Stable. Uh, and I dare say the board is having to consider whether to change its name or not. But in the meantime, how have they been performing? Yeah, so they reported an NAV total return of 10.2% in that six-month period to the end of June. In share price terms, even better, actually up 20.2%. And obviously, that's a reflection of the fact their discount tightened. It went from about 27% to 21%. If you actually look at the portfolio level, so um, don't take into account the gearing or the rest of it, the portfolio total return came in at 7.9%. And that represented an outperformance of the MSCI benchmark. 
uh, which it was up 5.7%. Now, that's a reflection of the exposure to outperforming sectors. So it's got a heavy weight to the industrial sector. That's just short of 51% of the portfolio. Well, it's actually underweight retail as well. That's about 11%. So in terms of where it's at in terms of dividends, so they paid out dividends of 1.9875p. EPRA earnings per share came in at 1.9p, so it was uncovered, but basically dividend cover was 95.5%. Also on rent collection, that came in about 93%, although the occupancy rate declined to 88%. But you're very on the money as always. The board said it's actively considering changing the fund's name and will engage with shareholders in due course. I mean, this trust has a pretty good uh, long-term record and is yielding, I'm making a guess here, it's probably yielding around 5%, is it? But the discount has come in uh, quite significantly, as with a number of other trusts in this sector. Have I got that right? That's spot on. The yield is 5% precisely. Um, in terms of the discount, it's, we've got it on about an 18% discount or so at the moment. Um, it's been as wide as 41% uh, over the last 12 months. Uh, it has also been a little bit tighter, but it's averaged about 23%. So you can see that has been a positive re-rating. So in general terms, all those who said that buying into some of these commercial property trusts, so when they went out, those wide uh, discounts was uh, likely to be a profitable venture. And so it has proved, uh, so far at least. So finally, we're going to come around to, uh, well, let's have a guess. It's going to be something to do with music royalties probably. And this time we're going to be talking about Roundhill Music Royalty, ticker RHM, which is, if you like, the... Uh, comparator and uh, competitor to hypnosis songs who we mentioned far too often but uh, we always have a bit of fun with that so uh, I dare say they've announced something about an acquisition this week eh? not to be outdone by their friends at song absolutely right so this week they announced they'd acquired the recorded music income and publishing rights to 30 songs from a record producer and songwriter called Tim Palmer he's probably best known from working with a band called Pearl Jam Back in the day, he was involved in a record called 10, which has sold 25 million records, as well as an Ozzy Osbourne album called Down to Earth. So there wasn't any disclosure in terms of how much this catalogue throws off, um, but one would assume that uh, for Tim Palmer, at least, who's a UK record producer, um, it's obviously been an attractive deal. Is Pearl Jam one of the groups that you spend your time listening to, Sam? Yeah, I've got to be honest, Pearl Jam and, for that matter, Ozzy Osbourne are not on my playlist at the moment, but uh, that might have to change. Indeed. Nor on mine at the moment, but we're very broad-minded here, and uh, that's one of the attractions of the investment trust sector is it allows us to have access to things where we always learn as we go along, as well as helping us make some money over time. That's all we have time for this week. As I say, this was recorded on a Thursday, but we will be uh, back next week at a normal time. In the meantime, I just mentioned anybody who's a member of the Moneymakers Circle, we've had a number of interesting fun profiles by my colleague, Stuart Watson, and he's done one on uh, TR property and uh, also on uh, one of the Bailey Giver, US Growth. And this week, he's looking at HG Capital. So if you're interested in those trusts, you'll find a lot of background information in our fun profiles. But that's all we have time for. Thank you, Simon, and I look forward to speaking again next week. Thank you. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.